evangelical evangelical Christians like me and other children of the Protestant Reformation affirm a doctrine known as sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. But many professing Christians, including both those who by many Christians accounts are likewise Christians, like Roman Catholics and in the Eastern Orthodox, as well as a number of professing Christians that we would not classify as Christians, namely uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, many such people, many such groups deny the doctrine of sola scriptura and insist that at the very least equal in authority to scripture is some sort of human authority, some sort of human tradition, um, or, or some sort of divine tradition but communicated outside of the scriptures. So how, as Christians, can we decide whether scripture should be our final authority or whether we should treat it as equal with other such authorities? That's the question that we'll seek to begin to answer in this episode of The Apologetics. Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Uh, really quick, if you are in the live stream right now and I'm coming through loudly and clearly and you can see me well, please go ahead and give me a thumbs up or something in the chat so I know that the stream is working properly. Um, otherwise, I'm going to assume that it is. I'm being told by YouTube that my stream health is good and I can see the uh, few seconds delayed thumbnail of me moving around and stuff. So I think everything's fine, um, but I don't have many... Uh, viewers watching right now, if I'm not mistaken, and none of them have yet told me in the chat that everything is up and running well. So uh, do please let me know if you wouldn't mind. And then also just forgive me if I take my glasses off and rub my eyes like this periodically. For some reason, uh, my eyes are really watering a lot uh, right now. Uh, this is something that has happened periodically ever since I started wearing glasses. I'm not sure why that is. Oh, thank you, Robert, for letting me know that sound and, and um, and uh, video is good. A uh, couple of quick things by way of getting started before we jump into the topic today. First of all, um, this show, The Apologetics, is part of a network of shows and podcasts called The Trinity Commission, which is a group of shows and podcasts that are all in one way, shape, or form affiliated with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, at which I am an adjunct professor of Bible and Theology. Um, so if you are interested in learning or uh, learning informally from other Trinity-affiliated shows, check out The Trinity Commission by doing a search for The Trinity Commission uh, on Facebook, and you'll find the other shows that are part of that network including uh, Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path, Braxton Hunter's and Jonathan Pritchett's Trinity Radio, Leighton Flowers' Soteriology 101, The Bible Brodown, and more. Uh, and then if, if you're interested in a formal education, um, check out trinitysem.edu. That's SEM, which is short for seminary. trinitysem.edu. Uh, Trinity is a is an affordable, both in terms of time and money, uh, school at which you can get a Christian higher education um, at both undergraduate and graduate levels. Uh, so check that out. And speaking of that, and again, I'm sorry, I have to keep taking my glasses off. Uh, 
Speaking of Trinity Seminary, I am preparing right now my um, lectures for my the very first class that I'll be teaching, which begins, I think, in June or July, which will be uh, first year Biblical Hebrew. Um, if you are interested in getting started learning Biblical Hebrew uh, now, before you start taking it later this year officially with Trinity or if you're not planning on taking it formally through Trinity, then do keep an eye on this channel because I'm building a series called Biblical Hebrew 101. And between last episode of The Apologetics and this one, I have published both the practice session for lecture three, which was on nouns, as well as um, some a video on how to get started typing in Hebrew. So if that's something that you, again, if, if you want to begin to learn Biblical Hebrew, even apart from a formal education at Trinity or elsewhere, uh, I'm hoping that this series will be of seminary quality and will help you get the uh, an informal education that's as close to a formal education as you could possibly get. Um, I don't know if I've achieved that goal, but time will tell, and uh, hopefully you guys will let me know what you think. Um, I guess that's it. Uh, I won't spend any more time on this sort of introductory prolegomena. Let's go ahead and dive into the topic today, which is the topic of Sola Scriptura. And uh, it's a topic that I'm introducing in the form of a primer today. Uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. But first, let me um, tell you the context of why I decided to do this show. Uh, the context, uh, my personal context when it comes to why I'm doing Sola Scriptura now, is a debate that I have um, scheduled upcoming on March 4th on Marlon Wilson's uh, YouTube show, The Gospel Truth. I will be debating Roman Catholic Michael Lofton, um, and I will be affirming the proposition, the original text of scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, whereas uh, Michael Lofton will be denying that proposition. Um, so this is, I think, just over a month away, and uh, what I'm about to offer is not at all the full, um, the full case that I will be presenting and defending in that debate, but this primer that I'm going to be giving today is my attempt at beginning the preparation work for that debate, and also hopefully giving my opponent an idea beforehand, uh, a little bit of an idea, where I will be coming from, even if between now and then I further develop the case that I'll be presenting today. So check that out. You can easily find it by just doing a YouTube search for the gospel truth or, or doing a Facebook search for Marlon Wilson or the gospel truth or whatever. Um, but please do put this on your calendar. Again, that's Thursday, March 4th, 5 p.m. Pacific time. So that would be 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain. And like all of Marlon Wilson's episodes of The Gospel Truth, it will be archived in the Gospel Truth YouTube channel after the debate has live streamed. So if you can't catch the debate live, that's okay. You'll be able to watch it afterwards. Um, so that's what prompted me to do this episode of The Apologetics. Now, what do I mean by a primer? Um, notice I'm not saying a primer. A primer is something different. Uh, primer is the coat of uh, material you put on the wall before you put paint on. Uh, primer can be like has something to do with uh, uh, an ignition, right? You can prime. Uh, you can prime a pump, stuff like that. But that's not what a primer is. 
A primer is a short, informative piece of writing, an introductory text, an elementary textbook that serves as an introduction to a subject of study, that kind of thing. And, and that's what I'm going to be presenting today when it comes to Sola Scriptura. In other, in other words, an introductory treatment of the topic, not a full-fledged defense. Again, I will be um, developing the case that I'll begin here between now and my debate. And at that point, I hope to present something of a more full-fledged defense. Um, but for the time being, I'm only presenting a primer here. This this captures what I understand to be the, uh, the meaning and case for Sola Scriptura, what I have understood in the past 20 years I've been a Christian, um, not any additional um, case building evidence that I intend to gather over the course of the next month or so. All right. Now, let me talk very briefly about the context of Sola Scriptura, something that may help you a little bit. Sola Scriptura is a doctrine that arose in the, or at least began, began, uh, began to be codified, you know, officially formulated in the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it's one of two uh, what are called causes of the Reformation. Hey, Peter Grice, good to see you. Thank you for um, watching. That means a lot, my friend. Um, so, Sola Scriptura is one of two uh, is, is acknowledged to be one of two causes of the Protestant Reformation. One of those causes is, is known as the material cause. Um, put another way, this is this is sort of the, the particulars of the dispute. Most prominently among them, the doctrine of sola fide, um, which refers to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. This is the uh, material cause, or at the very least, one of the material causes of the Reformation. But the formal cause, the cause uh, whence particulars arise, you know, the, the, the cause from which the particulars, including sola fide, arise, is the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is short for scripture alone, but not scripture alone full stop, but scripture alone is the infallible rule of faith, and I'll elaborate on that in a few moments. So R.C. Sproul in his book Faith Alone puts it this way, the Aristotelian distinction between form and matter um, has been used to say that the formal cause of the Reformation was the issue of authority, sola scriptura, and that the material cause was the issue of justification, sola fide. The material cause, he writes later in Faith Alone, is the stuff out of which a thing is made or shaped. He gives the analogy of a statue where the form, or sorry, where the material is the marble out of which the statue is carved. The formal cause, by contrast, is the idea, blueprint, or concept the artist uses to form his work. So, in, you know, with a statue, the formal cause is the blueprint, and the material cause is the stuff out of which the statue is carved. And in the as analogy as as analogy as an analogy to scripture, um, that means that scripture. Or sorry, the Reformation. That means that the formal cause of the Reformation, the idea or blueprint whence the Reformation comes, is sola scriptura, the issue of authority. Whereas the material causes are all the other individual, uh, prime, you know, primary distinctions between Protestant Reformed doctrine and Roman Catholicism, um, including sola fide. All right. So when we talk about sola scriptura, we're talking about what has been called the formal cause or formal principle of uh, the Reformation, namely the issue of authority. Now let's talk about what sola scriptura is, and then we'll talk about what it is not, um, because this is often misunderstood. 
The doctrine of sola scriptura is that the original text of scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Um, a couple of things I've bolded here because they're really important. I've bolded the original text, meaning that it's not any particular translation of the original text of scripture that is the authoritative scripture, but rather the original text, which is translated into the many translations that we have today and that have been translated throughout history, including the Latin Vulgate, the uh, King James Version, and, and many other since. And then I bolded soul infallible because we're not saying that the doctrine of sola scriptura is not that scripture is the only rule of faith and practice, the only authority. It's that it's the only infallible authority. So the doctrine of sola scriptura maintains that scripture is the only rule whose nature is such that it cannot mislead one who rightly understands it. Um, and we could add that, it, that Scripture alone cannot fail to save and edify one who truly follows it. Every other rule of faith, every other authority is fallible, can possibly mislead, and can possibly fail to save and edify even those who rightly understand it and follow it. So this is what sola scriptura is. The original text of scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, the only rule whose nature is such that it cannot mislead one who rightly understands it. It alone cannot fail to save and edify one who truly follows it. Um, here's the way that John Peckham puts it in his book, Canonical Theology. Um, John Peckham is not a Calvinist. Uh, I'll be quoting a lot from him as he is not a Calvinist like I am, but then I'll also be quoting from fellow Calvinists. In fact, I already did. R.C. Sproul was a Calvinist. Uh, but John Peckham writes, uh, he, he, he summarizes the doctrine of sola scriptura as follows. Scripture, number one, is the uniquely infallible source of divine revelation that is available to contemporary humans collectively. Notice there, uniquely infallible. That's the important part. Number two, scripture alone provides a sufficient and fully trustworthy basis of theology. All right? So it's not that um, other sources besides scripture can provide um, some basis of theology. It's that scripture is the only one that is sufficient and fully trustworthy. And number three, scripture is the uniquely authoritative and final norm of theological interpretation that norms all others. This is the Reformation idea that scripture is the norming norm. Uh, so in other words, there are other norms. There are other norms for um, uh, that, that, that identify what is normative for Christian faith and practice, but scripture is the one that norms them all. All right, so those that that is, I think, a good summary of sola scriptura. Now, sola, script, sola Scriptura includes some corollaries that I want to briefly mention here before talking about what Sola Scriptura isn't. Sola Scriptura uh, includes the doctrine of Tota Scriptura, that all of Scripture is collectively the final norm. Not this or that Scripture, but all of it. Uh, as James White, a fellow Calvinist, puts it in his book, Scripture Alone, holding to sola scriptura means one must likewise firmly hold to tota scriptura, belief in and acceptance of all that the Bible reveals. Second, uh, sola scriptura includes the doctrine of analogia scriptura, or you might say analogia fide, the, the, the rule of faith, uh, by which it is meant that scripture authoritatively interprets itself. John Peckham, again, puts it this way, Analogia Scriptura means that Scripture is internally coherent, and thus any scriptural text should be understood in light of the biblical canon as a whole. 
it's scripture interprets scripture. And then thirdly, sola scriptura entails the doctrine of illumination, the, the doctrine according to which the Holy Spirit helps to understand scripture. scripture. Um, which is to say that while there may be a certain basic level of understanding any reader of scripture can have just by simply understanding um, propositional text, nevertheless, the Holy Spirit um, helps to illuminate its meaning even further. And so people who are operating in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, um, are, better, are more capable, better prepared to rightly understand scripture than those who are not. So John Peckham puts it this way, citing 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 14, spiritual things are spiritual discerned, uh, teaches that, sorry, spiritually discerned, <laughs> that's a typo on my part, teaches that the Holy Spirit should be sought for illumination of all biblical interpretation. But then going back to that issue of unbelievers, uh, James White rightly points out that outside of the Holy Spirit's work in man's heart and mind, even the plainest truths which seems so utterly compelling to the regenerated heart, remain foolishness and a stumbling block. Okay, so those are the concepts behind the doctrine of illumination. So we've covered what scripture is, and we've covered some corollaries that are included within sola scriptura, but this is where it gets really important, defining what sola scriptura is not. Because very often, critics of sola scriptura um, mischaracterize and, and caricature the doctrine of sola scriptura in ways that warp it and distort it into um, doctrines that it really isn't. Doctrines that don't, you know, statements, uh, characterizations that don't accurately reflect sola scriptura. And it's not just critics. Believers in sola scriptura often misunderstand it and mischaracterize it and abuse it as well. So the doctrine of sola scriptura is not that scripture is alone full stop in other words that scripture is to be um uh, believed in isolation this is some sometimes referred to as solo scriptura as a, as opposed to sola scriptura whether or not that is a real meaningful distinction in the latin is something i don't know not being a latin reader myself but nevertheless the point here is that believers in sola scriptura who rightly understand it do not believe that it is me and my bible under a tree in isolation from all other uh believers past and present Right, that's not what sola scriptura means. Even if some people who profess to follow sola scriptura treat it that way. Secondly, sola scriptura is not the notion that any particular interpretation of scripture is the authoritative one. So, for example, as a Calvinist, I take John six forty four a certain way, whereas a non Calvinist will take it a different way. The truth is that John sixty John six forty four is what's authoritative. The, uh, what is not true of Sola Scriptura is that my Calvinist interpretation of John 6.44 is the authoritative one. I do think mine is the one that accurately reflects John 6.44, the original meaning. Um, but that has to be proven by uh, exegesis and debate. Right? I, I can't just take for granted that my understanding of John 6.44 is the one that people should see as authoritative. Third, sola scriptura is not a notion that scripture is exhaustive on all matters, for example, science. Now, people who know me know I'm a young earth creationist, so I'm not at all appealing to this aspect of what sola scriptura is not in order to discount young earth creationism or to affirm old earth creationism or progressive creationism or theistic evolution or anything like that. I'm just saying 
that scripture is not exhaustive on all matters. That sola scriptura does not entail that it is. Scripture is not going to tell you, for example, um, how to uh, stitch a wound or, or, or whether or not to take aspirin to heal a headache or how to um, heal a headache or whatever. There's lots of things that scripture or, or, or what, what gases constitute the sun. You know, there's a host of issues like that that scripture just has nothing to say on at all. And Sola Scriptura is not uh, the claim that it does or should. And then lastly, Sola Scriptura, and I should have added to this list that um, the script, Sola Scriptura is not any particular translation of the authoritative one, but that sort of goes to my what I said earlier, that it's the original text that we're talking about in Sola Scriptura. And then lastly, Sola Scriptura is not the idea that Scripture is inerrant, without error. Now let me be clear, I affirm biblical inerrancy. Um, and I do struggle to, to understand how anybody could um, treat any of Scripture as authoritative if they don't treat every part of Scripture as authoritative. I, I, I just can't. I, I don't understand. I've tried. I've, I've talked to people I trust and admire and respect who aren't inerrantists. Um, and they've tried to explain why you don't have to throw the whole baby out or the whole bathwater out with the baby. Or sorry, the baby with all the bathwater. Uh, but I, I don't get it. I, it does not make sense to me. Now, that may be my own failing, but the point I'm getting at here is that I do affirm biblical inerrancy, but I don't think that it is in, that it is absolutely vital or critical to affirming sola scriptura. Some will say that it is, though. And so you'll have to take this one with a grain of salt. I'm not necessarily, on this fourth point, uh, representing all Protestants, but I do think I'm re uh, representing many of them. All right, so we've talked about what scripture, sola scriptura is, what it includes is additionally, and what it is not. So now I want to turn to a case, a, a bit of an underdeveloped in coet case, for the doctrine of sola scriptura from scripture itself. But first, a caveat, or a couple of caveats. Um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox claim that scripture is equal to tradition in authority. This is important. They're not, they at least claim that scripture is not subservient or subject to the authority of tradition or the magisterium in the case of Roman Catholicism. These groups, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, at least claim that these are on par with each other. They are equal to one another in, in terms of authority. And that's important because they therefore cannot discount a biblical case for sola scriptura as circular or self-referential. An atheist might be able to do that. How, they might be able to say, hey, you can't appeal to the Bible in order to defend the authority of the Bible. Okay, and that's legitimate, and an atheist can make that argument, and we can respond to it. But my point here is that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox cannot, because they already accept that the Bible is authoritative, at the very least as equal as authoritative as their own tradition, and in the case of Roman Catholics, magisterium. So there's no argument. They can't discount the case I'm about to make as if it's circular or self-referential. It's simply uh, appealing to one of the things that they treat as ultimately authoritative, even if there are other ultimate authorities as well. And lastly, and this is important, the biblical case I'm about to offer is aimed at them, the, the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, and arguably to um, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others who think that there are even higher authorities than the text of Scripture. 
But this case is not aimed at uh, other non-Christians like atheists and, and, and other people who just don't treat the Bible as authoritative at all. For them, there's going to be more required in a case for sola scriptura. Okay? So this is this primer that I'm offering, this, this inchoate, underdeveloped case I'm about to offer, is specifically aimed at um, the other two major branches of Christendom besides Protestantism, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And then the other caveat is that, right, this isn't a caveat, this is an introduction to the case I'm about to offer. Um, I affirm, rightly admit and acknowledge that the Bible does not explicitly teach the doctrine of sola scriptura. You will find no text that says believers are only to, or the believers are to treat the scripture as authoritative over all other things, human traditions, human institutions, etc. Um, you will find no text that says that the Bible is the only infallible uh, uh, rule of faith and practice. You know, nothing like that. The Bible doesn't explicitly teach it. But neither is the Trinity. Neither, neither does it uh, so teach the doctrine of the Trinity or a number of other um, doctrines that are accepted by Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. All of us recognize that there are some doctrines which are true and are rightly derived from Scripture, even if Scripture doesn't explicitly teach it. And so the case that I'm about to offer um, is based, or, or the case I'm about to offer is that although the doctrine of sola scriptura is not explicitly taught in Scripture, the doctrine is rightly inferred from at least four truths that are explicitly taught in Scripture. Okay? These are the four truths that are going to comprise this underdeveloped inchoate case for sola scriptura, um, one which I will further develop between now and my debate. Some of what I'm about to present may be included in that case, some of it may not. This is not meant to be the kind of case that I think is airtight and that will have no holes. I've still got research to do and preparation to do. Okay, but this is the case that I have seen as um, compelling and as decisive ever since I became a Christian. Number one, Scripture explicitly identifies Scripture as God's words. Number two, Scripture explicitly identifies itself as infallible. Number three, Scripture identifies itself explicitly as living and powerful. And number four, Scripture explicitly treats tradition as subordinate to Scripture. Okay? So I'm going to unpack each of these, or I'm going to offer a number of texts for each of these four points, and then um, go from there, all right? So let's talk first about my about this first premise. And, and uh, just to be clear, I'm not offering a syllogism here, okay? This is not, this is not meant to be a deductive argument where the premises, premises lead irresistibly to the conclusion. This is more of an inductive case. And, um, this is, these are four observations to which I am, or from which I am arguing to what I allege to be the best explanation, which is the doctrine of sola scriptura, okay? So number one, scripture identifies itself as the words of God. This is all over the place, but here are a few texts. Uh, in Matthew 1, 22 to 23, it uh, refers to what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive so and and here the author the speaker is explicitly or is, is explicitly quoting Isaiah 7:14. So the prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 is attributed to the words of God himself. Matthew 4:4 4, 4, Jesus says it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is appealing to that which is written as that which comes from the mouth of God by which humans are meant to live. 
So the writings of Scripture are the words that come from the very mouth of God. Matthew 19, 4-5, He who created and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. This is Jesus, uh, if I remember correctly, talking to the uh, Sadducees. Um, they're trying to challenge him on the doctrine of resurrection. Um, and he is, and, and they say, you know, of these seven brothers that this one woman has married each in turn, which one of them is going to be his wife? I think that's the, the context of the statement. But the point is, is Jesus saying, that the one who created male and female is the one who said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. But those are the words of the author or editor of Genesis 2, specifically verse 24. So the words of Genesis 2.24, the words of Scripture, are the very words of God. Matthew 22.31-32, Jesus says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This actually, I know, is the context I just referred to. So this is where the Sadducees are trying to deny the reality of resurrection. And what he tells them is, um, God said in the word of God that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he's the God of the living. Okay? But he's quoting from Exodus 3.6. And he says that the words of Exodus 3.6, in which God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the God of the living, etc., were said to Israel by God. Notice he didn't say these were said to the original hearer of those words, but to you, my hearers, Jesus says. The only way that can make sense is if those words in Exodus 3.6, um, the written record of them are the very words of God, but thereby given to Israel. Luke 1, 68 and 70, the Lord God of Israel spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, uh, sorry, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from what? Right, so, so God, the God of Israel, spoke and his words are recorded by the prophets in scripture. Acts 1, 16 and 20, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, may his camp become desolate and here... It's quoting the words of the psalmist in Psalm 69.25, May there can't be a desolation. So, the words of the psalmist are said to be the words of the very Holy Spirit, spoken by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 16-17, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out... Dot, dot, dot. But what's interesting is that in the original written record of Joel's prophecy, God declares is not listed there. It just says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out, etc. So Peter, if I'm remembering correctly, here is the one speaking in Acts 2, 16 and 17, says that it's God declaring the things that Joel is prophesying. Again, the prophecy is the word of God. Romans 3, 2, Paul says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says the one who, uh, that a Christian should acknowledge that the things he is writing are a command of the Lord. So Paul's own words, are a, written words in scripture, are indeed from the Lord himself. And 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. In, in the context of the debate over sola scriptura, very often it's the rest of this verse that is concentrated on, profitable for teaching, for reproof, etc. And sometimes the critic of sola scriptura will say, yeah, but it doesn't say sufficient, it just says profitable. And that's fair. But the text does say that scripture is theopneustos, breathed by God, breathed out by God. So the words penned uh, by the writers of scripture were as if breathed onto the paper by God himself. 
2 Peter 1, 20-21, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophecy in Scripture is, a, is of purely human origin. It's all the very words of God. 2 Peter 3, 15, 16, and this is important because this further substantiates that what Paul is writing is directly from God. Notice what we just saw him say back in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, this is Paul. All scripture is theopneustos, breathed out by God. But Peter had just gotten done saying it in chapter 1, that, that the prophecies of, that, that in scripture men speak from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say that Paul also wrote in all his letters some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So here Peter is identifying Paul's writings as theopneustos, scripture okay so again this is just a sampling but these i think suffice to substantiate that scripture is the very words of god okay which naturally and irresistibly leads to the conclusion that scripture is supremely authoritative now that doesn't mean that there aren't other equal authority authorities but at the very least none can be higher since scripture itself is the word of God, the words of God. All right, number two, scripture explicitly self-identifies as infallible. So, Matthew 5.18, Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Luke 22.37, Jesus says, this or, or the author says this scripture must be fulfilled. Yeah, Jesus says this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 12, and he was numbered blah, blah, blah. So Jesus says the scripture must be fulfilled. Well, of course, it's God's words, right? So no duh, but this makes it more explicit. Luke 24, 44, everything Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's no possibility otherwise. It's infallible. John 10, 35. Jesus says he speaks of those to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, he says. So Jesus explicitly identifies scripture as the words of God as being unbreakable, infallible. In John 15, 25, it speaks of the word that is written in their law and says it must be Fulfilled, And then it quotes Psalm 3519 or 69.4, saying they hated me without a cause. So here again, we have a psalm that must be fulfilled. Acts 1, 16-20, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, for it is written in the book of Psalms. The psalm has to be fulfilled. It's infallible. It cannot fail. All right. So, again, sampling of scriptures that identify the Bible, the biblical text itself is infallible. All right. So, no, he's not saying someone must keep the law perfectly, Jamie. He's saying that the, the, the authority of the law um, will not uh, pass away until everything has been fulfilled. Um, and I think Protestants would all acknowledge, at least, I don't know about Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, uh, that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the, the law. Um, it does fulfill it. Okay, so we've identified texts which explicitly indicate that Scripture is God's words. 
We've seen a sampling of texts that explicitly indicate that scripture is infallible. Jamie asks, is law prophecy? Well, notice that these texts and others treat the Psalms, which are not part of the law, as every bit as unbreakable and infallible as law, which is Torah. Torah uh, Ketuvim, or sorry, um, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the, the writings, they're all spoken of by the New Testament authors as being equally God's words at words and equally unbreakable, equally infallible. All right, and then number three, Scripture explicitly self-identifies as living and powerful. Okay, not supernaturally so. So, for example, Ephesians 6, 10, 13, and 17, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one, and so forth. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, Paul is explicitly saying here that the, that the word of God, the Bible, is powerful. It, is, it has the capacity, the supernatural capacity, to enable the one who abides in it, to withstand the devil. First Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. Paul says the word of God, he speaks of the word of God, which is at work in you believers. How does he know that it's at work, working inside the hearts and minds of the uh, Thessalonians? Because they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. The fact that the Thessalonians are imitating, be acting like the churches of God in Christ Jesus, that fact is evidence that the, that the Bible, the scriptures, the gospel written in Paul's letters is at work within their hearts and minds. The word of God is supernaturally active, living, powerful. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So notice what Paul is saying here. Um, he, he uses my gospel and the word of God synonymously, and he says, I'm bound, but the gospel, the word of God, is not. You see, we humans don't have a supernatural ability, unless granted to us, to prevent ourselves from being bound and chained and, and persecuted. But the gospel cannot be bound because it's powerful. The Bible, the scripture, the word of God cannot be bound because it's powerful. It, it's, it's the very power of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, the author of Hebrews here says, is living, active. Powerful. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 2 and, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For the word of the Lord remains forever. And here Peter is uh, quoting from Isaiah 48. Not Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. So the word of God, the words of God, including those inscripturated, um, the gospel um, is imperishable and living and abiding and is that by which people are born again, born from above and remains forever. First John 2.14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Notice what 
um, John is saying here to his recipients. He's calling these young men strong. He says they have been able to overcome the evil one. Why? Well, we've already seen why. Because Paul said that the word of God, the Bible, the scripture, is the sword of the spirit, part of the armor of God, by which we are able to resist the evil one. And that's John's point here. The word of God abides in you. And it is because of that that therefore you are strong and you have overcome. The gospel, the word of God, the inscripturated words of God himself abide in us. If, if it abides in us, we are capable of overcoming the evil one. Which is not a promise given to those to whom or in whom the word of God does not abide. All right. So we've seen that scripture explicitly identifies, self-identifies as the words of God. We've seen that scripture explicitly identifies as infallible. We've seen that scripture explicitly self-identifies as living and powerful and active, supernaturally so. And then fourthly, scripture explicitly identifies tradition as subordinate. Okay, so Matthew 15, 6, Jesus says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He says similarly in Mark 7, 8, and, uh, and you could see a very similar statement in seven thirteen. You leave the commandment of God and instead hold to the tradition of men. Now, this isn't to say that tradition can't be contained within the word of God and equal there to, and, and therefore equal to it. But it is to say that if you adhere to a tradition at the, for, uh, at the cost of adhering to the word of God, you are violating the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Tradition is subordinate to the word of God. Acts 5.21, Peter, if I remember correctly here, it says we must obey God rather than men. So we must obey what, the, what God's words say. God's infallible, living, and active scripture. Yes, Darren, in, Darren P. Plies in, in the chat says subordinate to the infallible. That's right, because tradition is fallible, but scripture is not. For, which, for, the very reason, for that very reason, tradition is subordinate to scripture. Acts 17.11, um, Luke praises the Jews in Thessalonica, or, or in, in uh, Berea. He says they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because the Jews in Berea received the word, that is the word that Paul and Silas brought them. Paul, the very author of most of the New Testament. They received that word with all eagerness, but... They examined the scriptures daily to make sure that the word Paul and Silas were bringing them was accurate. So even the very spoken words of Paul himself and his partner Silas, is they were subordinate to the teachings of scripture. If they violated the scripture, then what Paul and Silas said was no better than dung. Tradition and human authority is subject, subordinate to that of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Any tradition that attempts to pull you in a direction beyond the direction that Scripture is taking you is to be rejected. 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, Paul says, I am afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
He's saying, see, his 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 charge against the Corinthians, if I'm understanding him correctly, is that he 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 his charge is that when they are presented with a gospel different from the one that he and the other apostles presented them, in which they originally accepted, they put up with it readily enough, rather than um, drive it away. And because they do that, he is afraid that they will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, because they treat traditions and other messages from people as, as on par with Scripture, he fears for their salvation. Galatians 1.8 here Paul says, even if we, Paul, myself, you know, speaking as Paul, even if I or any of the other apostles, or even an angel from heaven, should preach to you Galatians a, con a gospel contrary to the one that we already preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay, so even if Paul, John, Peter, or any of the other apostles or, or um, disciples present a gospel that is contrary to the one recorded in the New Testament... It's, it must be um, anathema. Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. Any tradition that goes contrary to the word of God, the gospel, Christ's words recorded in scripture, etc., is a mere human tradition um, that is likely to be empty deceit and empty philosophy. Second John 10 verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So if somebody, I don't care if it's the Pope, brings to you a teaching that goes contrary to what the, the New Testament and the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God says, that person is to be rejected as evil. So, again, just to reiterate, we've seen that the scripture self-identifies explicitly as God's words. We've seen that scripture explicitly self-identifies as infallible. We've seen that scripture explicitly self-identifies as living and powerful. And we've seen that scripture, self, or scripture identifies tradition as being subordinate to scripture. Those four truths are explicit in Scripture, even if sola scriptura is not. Crucially, Scripture never says that church leaders or traditions are God's words, are infallible, or are living and powerful. Scripture never says anything remotely close to these things. So this is, again, my underdeveloped, inchoate, you know, uh, primer introductory case for Sola Scriptura. No, it's not explicitly in Scripture, but it is rightly inferred from these four truths that are explicit and Scripture. And it never says those same things about traditions. Never. Okay. Oh, and so, and so going, uh, quoting John Peckham here again, I, I think he's right when he says in canonical theology that the burden of proof is on those who wish to assert an additional source or sources of authority in 21st century practice and beyond. Sola Scriptura is properly derived from, even if it's not explicit in, Scripture itself.
Okay. But now that we've presented this underdeveloped inchoate introductory case for Sola Scriptura, one that is an inductive argument, one to the best explanation of the observable evidence in Scripture, the question that naturally arises is, what about? <laughs> um, and here there are both verses and concepts that often are raised when people say, yeah, but what about? And I will not be covering all of the texts that are raised when people say, what about? And I won't be covering today any of the concepts or issues that often are raised by people who say, what about? So, for example, one of the arguments that is almost certain to come up in my upcoming debate is the issue of the canon. If, if sola scriptura is true, then, there mu then the scripture itself must identify what the canon is. And if not, then sola scriptura can't be true. Now, that's just a dumb argument. It's bogus, it's stupid, and it's false. But I'm not going to cover that today. I may, between now and the debate, in an episode of The Apologetics, but I definitely will in the debate if it comes up. What I am going to cover here, however, is just a few biblical texts that are often brought, often brought up by those who respond to a case like mine with, yeah, but what about? And the first text I want to look at is, well, what about 1 Corinthians 11.2? Yeah, Susan, I know you, you said you were a bit late to the game. On March 4th, as I explained at the beginning of the show, on March 4th, I'm debating a Roman Catholic on Martha, Marlon Wilson's The Gospel Truth Show. His The Catholic's name uh, is... Uh, Michael Lofton, and we'll be debating the topic of Sola Scriptura. Okay, so after a case like mine, somebody responds, well, what about 1 Corinthians 11.2, which says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Doesn't, doesn't Paul seem here to be commending people for treating traditions as authoritative, on par in terms of authority with Scripture even? Well, no. As James White rightly points out in Scripture alone, in, in none of the passages that uh, Roman Catholics and others bring up, are we even given a hint, not one hint at all, that the content of tradition, the tradition that these verses tell us to uphold, differs in the slightest at all, in the slightest degree, from what Paul is writing to the churches. In other words, in every text that we're going to look at and others, if there are any others, in which believers are told in Scripture to uphold tradition or commended for it or whatever, there's no indication whatsoever, not a hint, not a not a aura of the penumbra like the uh, like is alleged to support abortion, nothing, not a hint that the traditions they're referring to are anything different from the traditions recorded in Scripture itself. And we'll continue to, to see some of this as we progress through these whatabouts. Well, what about 2 Thessalonians 2.15? Paul tells the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Isn't this Paul telling believers that we are to embrace the apostolic traditions, whether you know whether a tradition is whether one tradition is communicated by written letter like the ones in the New Testament, or whether this other tradition is instead by spoken word? Um, well, first of all, notice that the text itself implies that there's one body of tradition. That body of traditions to which we are to stand firm and hold to was spoken and communicated by letter. 
He says, stand firm and hold to not the traditions that were spoken to you and other traditions that were communicated via letter, but rather stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, whether that body of traditions came by our spoken word or by our letter. So already you've got an implication here. You've got it implied that he's not talking about, I've got some teachings which are going to arrive to you in scripture and others which are arrived to you by word of mouth. No, there's a body of traditions and that body has been communicated both by word of mouth and by written letter. That's already what the text implies, which is to say there are no traditions that we are obligated to uphold that aren't in scripture. It's already right there, implied in the text. But um, but notice the context. If we go back just a few verses to verse 5 in 2 Thessalonians 2, notice what Paul says to them. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? What things? The things he's writing to them about. Right? So here already in the context, Paul con- talks about um, some things, things which he has both orally communicated to them when he was with them, and the very things he's writing to them now about now, both oral and written, same things. And then in the verses leading up to the verse in question, he says, God chose you, Thessalonians, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. And then he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So the traditions that he's telling them to adhere to, whether those traditions came by oral communication or by written communication, he's talking about the gospel, the truth that he has shared with them. He's not talking about two different streams of different traditions, one communicated by letter and one communicated by word. He's talking about the saving gospel which has been communicated to the Thessalonians by both word and letter. And so, as James White rightly says in Scripture alone, this is not secret knowledge, but is the very mark of Paul's public teaching. And what did Paul teach in the public places? Quite simply, the gospel. Okay, so no no extra-biblical tradition here, just the same traditions written in Scripture. But what about 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, in which Paul says, Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Well, don't you see now, don't you see what we've already seen in 2 Thessalonians? That Paul is talking about a body of tradition that is communicated both by word of mouth while he was with them, or as spread by uh, by others who got them directly from him, or by written by by written letter. It's the same body of tradition. It's not two different ones. And so John Peckham rightly says of this verse that Scripture itself recognizes the authoritative tradition of the Old Testament prophets and the first generation apostles, some of which was transmitted orally, at least until it was inscripturated. However, we possess no extant extra canonical writings that can be confidently identified as having come down to us from the prophets or apostles themselves. The most that we can do is identify extra-canonical, extant writings of very early church fathers, but you can identify, but where they verge away from scripture, you can identify no thread, no confident um, stream by which those early church fathers received those traditions from the apostles themselves. We just don't have any evidence of that. Nothing confident, nothing conclusive. 
And oral traditions provide no record that can be traced historically, especially after so many generations have passed. And so, the biblical canon itself contains the genuine written tradition of the prophets and apostles, for which there is an abundant historical and textual witness. So yes, the New Testament does commend and command believers to uphold the tradition, the, the body of tradition that the apostles were teaching, whether they were teaching them by word of mouth or whether that same they received that same body of tradition through the written letter. But it's nevertheless the same body of tradition that we see inscripturated in the New Testament, for which we have abundant historical and textual witness, whereas we have no compelling and confident uh, evidence that extra-biblical traditions that arise after the New Testament's inscripturation go back to the apostles themselves, not an iota, not a shred. So, in summary, when I'm this is my summary response to 1 Corinthians 11.2, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, and 2 Thessalonians 3.6. There is no indication in any of these texts that the traditions believers are commanded to obey are different from the traditions already recorded in Scripture. None. These verses simply do not support a case against Sola Scriptura. They do not. There's no way around it. But what about 1 Timothy 3.15? Here Paul tells Timothy, uh, he speaks of how one ought to behave in the household of God, and he says that the household of God is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now I'll confess here that at first glance, I mean, there does seem to be some, uh, it does seem on the surface for some reason that I can't articulate, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. It does seem as if on the surface, this is somehow um, grounding truth in the church. Okay? Um, and if that very surface level reading, which again, can't be really articulated in any meaningful way, um, if that were legitimate, then you might have here a case that the church itself is of equal authority to Scripture or even or even uh, superior to it. But you only have to scratch even the slightest bit beneath the surface to see how unfounded that reading is. Because pillars and buttresses are not what define truth. They are not the source of of truth, they are not the they are not the um, gatekeepers of truth. That's not what pillars and buttresses do. Pillars and buttresses hold up, and as James White puts it in the Roman Catholic controversy, a pillar holds something else up. And in this case, the thing that the church as a pillar holds up is the truth of God. The church, as the body of Christ, presents and upholds the truth. Just like a pillar holds up the uh, top of a, of a temple in, in first century Greek architecture. But the church remains subservient to it. So this language of the church being a, a pillar and buttress of truth is, an, is, is, the, is the picture of us holding up the truth for the world to see, the truth recorded in Scripture itself. But the thing that we're holding up is the very truth to which we are subservient. So 1 Timothy 3.15 does not at all support a challenge to Sola Scriptura. But what about Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19? In which Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. A couple of things here. Notice, he gives to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and says that whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven, etc. And notice also that he uses the Greek noun Petros, the Greek proper noun, the name Petros, to say you, Peter, are Peter. And then he uses what is basically the feminine equivalent of that noun, Petra, which means rock. And he says, and on this rock I will build my church. Doesn't it seem as if Jesus is calling Peter the rock on which he will build his church? Well, the answer is no, but let's dig into this a little bit more. James White, I think rightly, identifies in, in his book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, that the rock of which Lord speaks is that common confession, the confession that Peter has just made. The common confession made by all who are part of the church. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Excuse me, the Son of the living God. That's the rock. Notice he, James White goes on to say, while the Lord is addressing Peter directly, he changes from direct address, you, Peter, and then he says, this rock, this, this third party, this rock. There's no indication that he's looking at Peter when he says, you, Peter, and then he looks to everybody else and he says, and upon this rock, this Peter, <laughs> there's nothing like that. He says, upon, he's, he's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of the, the rock that is the confession that you just made, I will build my church. He does not say, James White points out, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. There's simply no support for that reading. I will add that in the, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you, plural, speaking to all the disciples, all the apostles, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, this isn't just Peter. This authority is, a, is, is an authority that was given to all the apostles and no one else. There's no evidence that this binding and loosing authority was given to the apostles in such a way that they would hand it down unto, uh, unto successive generations. And this authority, the ones who, to whom Jesus gave it, have exercised it in the writing of Scripture. But I'll add one more thing. Notice how very similar Jesus' words are in John 20, 23. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says to them. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice what this authority is about. This authority isn't about the authority to define what's true or not. It's not the authority to, um, to tell people what they must believe uh, um, in equal authority as scripture or anything like that. This is the authority to forgive sins or refuse to forgive sins. Is there any evidence that this is the kind of authority that is being granted to the apostles when Jesus gives them the keys to, the, uh, to, keys, the keys to bind on earth and, and bind in heaven? Yes, there is that very evidence. Why? Because in the part that I replaced with an ellipsis earlier in Matthew 16, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The picture here is of the gates of Hades being closed. Hades being the underworld, the place of the dead, the grave, the intermediate state, the negative intermediate state. And... 
what Jesus is saying here is that those gates won't be able to prevail against the church. It won't be able to prevent the church believers from being resurrected and glorified and thereby made immortal so as to live forever. As John Noland points out in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, which is part of the New International Greek Testament Commentary, it will be through his possession of the keys, Peter's that is, and by extension the other apostles, as we saw in Matthew 18, that the church will be put in a position of being able to rescue people from the grip of Hades. Rescued by salvific resurrection. Rescued by salvation unto resurrection and glorification. So, yes, the, the the apostles were given the keys that enabled them to bind on earth and loose on earth. They were able to um, forgive the sins of some, or they were able to, to forgive sins and refuse to forgive sins. But the basis of forgiveness and salvation, the, 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 that which makes us able to break through the gates of Hades after we've died and rise unto eternal life, is the saving gospel. Those keys that were given to the apostles were not the authority to define truth, especially not some sort of authority that extended successively in generations beyond them. It was the authority to issue the saving gospel and define who is in it and not at that time. All right. So hopefully this has been helpful. Uh, actually, let me go back to my slides and, and just sort of summarize. I should have put some summary slides in here, but let me wrap up my case. Again, this is an inductive case. Uh, this is this is an argument from the observable evidence to the best explanation. And the observable evidence are four things that Scripture explicitly says. Number one, Scripture explicitly identifies as God's words. Number two, Scripture explicitly identifies as infallible. Number three, Scripture explicitly identifies as supernaturally living, powerful, and active. And number four, Scripture explicitly identifies tra tradition as subordinate to itself. Crucially, meanwhile, Scripture never says church leaders or traditions are God's words, are infallible, or are living and active and powerful, etc., so that's the positive, again, underdeveloped in Coet case, but I think it's a powerful one. Meanwhile, um, texts like First, uh, First Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11.2, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, and 2 Thessalonians 3.6, all do rightly com command believers to, and commend believers for doing so, uh, to uphold and, and, and stand firm and, and, and hold firm to traditions, traditions handed down by the apostles, even traditions passed down orally. But they give no indication that those traditions are any different than the ones recorded in Scripture itself. And, in indeed, and indeed, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 seems to indicate that the same body of tradition is in, is in both streams, both the New Testament and um, oral tradition. So we don't need the oral tradition now because we've got the we've got the written scripture, we've got the written tradition. And then First Timothy three fifteen, in which the church is identified as the pillar and buttress of truth, just means the church upholds the truth, holds it up to the eyes of the world, but we remain subservient to it. And Matthew sixteen eighteen and nineteen, Peter and the apostles are given the keys, uh, the authority to spread the saving gospel and to forgive sins of some and, and deny forgiveness to others. But that authority was not the authority to define truth that is equal in authority to scripture, and they weren't given the author an authority that would be passed on from, uh, from them to successive, successive generations. 
At least, at least not because we have no such extra biblical traditions that can be confidently identified as having come from the apostles themselves. Okay, so that, my friends, is and brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as faithful Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, and yes, I implied something there. Um, but the key to what I implied was in that word faithful. Um, so that that what what is what I've just given you is hopefully a helpful a helpful primer that will introduce you to the history and context and meaning and case for and defense against the case against uh, sola scriptura. Um, again, the case was inchoate, underdeveloped, but between now and March fourth, I will develop it further. And just as a reminder for anybody else that is that is tuned in since the beginning of this stream, let me just put this stream this slide back up on the screen one more time. So on March 4th, which is the Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central and 8 p.m. Eastern. And I guess I should add uh, 1 a.m. UK time. <laughs> uh, I will be debating a Roman Catholic named Michael Lofton. Uh, on the topic of sola scriptura, I will be affirming the original text of scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, whereas my Roman Catholic opponent will be denying that. So keep an eye out. Um, set it on your calendar. If you can't watch live, you'll be able to check it out in the Gospel Truth YouTube channel after it's aired. Um, I probably will not do further episodes on sola scriptura between now and then. Uh, and my case on in the day of the debate may include additional information as I further prepare. Um, but hopefully this gives uh, my esteemed opponent, Michael Lofton, and observers, other observers, an idea of where I'm coming from in this month leading up to the debate. And although my case may be a little bit more, a little bit different from what I presented thus far, it won't substantially contradict the case I've already made. Which is to say that I'm giving my opponent uh, full permission, as if he needed it, uh, to quote what I said in this episode in my debate on um, March 4th, because I don't anticipate uh, having, I don't anticipate changing my mind on anything I've said today, okay? So hopefully this has helped. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Okay, in two weeks from today, I'm not exactly sure what I'll be covering. Um, Send me an email. My email address is on the screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com, if you would like me to cover any particular topic. Uh, the one that I am kind of interested in talking about is physicalism as opposed to dualism. So maybe I'll introduce that concept, that, that debate, and maybe t uh, talk a little bit about why I'm a physicalist. But I'm not sure. That's the thing I'm inclined toward. If you would rather hear me um, or see me, in the case of you YouTube watchers, uh, cover a different topic then email me at the email address on the screen and I will try I will I will consider very seriously what you request okay that's it for today's episode of the apologetics hope it has helped and edified you um, I will be back in two weeks which will be Monday February 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific 9 p.m. Eastern same time same YouTube channel youtube.com slash the apologetics and just as a reminder for anybody who doesn't already know, this show I do every other week, and on alternating weeks I do another YouTube show at the same time and same day of the week, 
Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. And that show is called Rethinking Hell Live. So if you would like to know why some conservative, um, you know, uh, conservative evangelicals like me who are firmly committed to the authority and reliability of scripture take a different understanding of the nature and duration and purpose of hell than most Christians do, then maybe tune in uh, to the next episode of Rethinking Hell Live, which will be one week from today, Monday, February 1st. At 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. You can find that at the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Rethinking Hell. Thank you, Peter and Susan and Jamie um, and Shannon, friends that I um, know either personally or because I know you on Facebook. Uh, thank you for, for tuning in live. Thank you for moderating, Susan, and everybody else that is tuned in live and goes on to watch this um, after it's been archived. Uh, Thank you for joining me, and thank you, Darren, for the compliment in the chat. I admire your nonconformist theology on some things. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to be faithful to Scripture. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you. I'll see you next time, and um, God bless. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...